coming to the end of our third full day of retreat together already, three days. And to me to have um, passed quickly, maybe for some it feels like an eon, <laughs> depends where you're at. It's been very lovely to be here at Gaia House. Feel very supportive. <clears throat> the grounds and the countryside, just uh, reflecting being here, how gentle the land is here in England. The soft grass and beautiful spread of the oak trees and the smells of the grasses and herbs. Um, quite a contrast to where we are in Africa, which is a more Kali-like kind of land, more turbulent, powerful, elemental. It has a different kind of effect on the mind. So I've been enjoying here this gentleness and softness, nourishment, walking barefoot on the, on the grass. It's been nice today also just beginning to meet people more individually and getting a sense for what people are working with. Um, nice to get a sense of the personal. Just a sea, a sea of faces in front of us here. <laughs> People's different experiences. Some easier and lighter, some more struggling, places of struggle. They've been very encouraged by the level of application, people applying themselves and really trying best they can to just stay with the process of the retreat. Just reflecting on how to use the retreat, how to use the schedule, how to use these practices in a way that um, empowers our own inner discernment and our own uh, in touch with our own needs. I think this is quite important because it's so easy in a large group like this, which is a bit more impersonal, um, and with a silent schedule, to become intimidated or out of touch with how to use a situation where we feel it's supportive rather than oppressing us. And sometimes we have conditioning around bells and schedules that brings up um, rebellion and um, feeling um, oppressed in some way or another. So I think it's really important that we find a way, each one of us, to work with this structure um, and not to just um, follow it in an unconscious way if we need to take time out, for some of us who are working with bodies that don't have a lot of energy and to rest, then to do that without feeling guilty. <laughs> take it as a practice, take time out, you know, compound it with, uh, with creating more stress. That's what we need to do. For others, maybe we need to actually stretch ourselves. What is it to to go beyond what the schedule is asking? 
sometimes in, in our lives we, we get dominated by this feeling of I can't, I can't do it or this is my limitation. And it means we never really grow into certain areas. So sometimes it's useful just to challenge ourselves as well. Stay with something a bit longer. Do a sitting where you would perhaps normally walk away from it. Stay on in the evening. And just see what, what that's like. What's that like to be with that, where we, we move beyond the, the structure? So experimenting, seeing the structure of a retreat as a place of uh, experimentation, something that's supportive, and also with the practices, the different practices that we've been encouraging and introducing to you, um, to pick them up with some inner discernment. For some people they work very well, they uh, feel they resonate, and for others they, they don't fit so comfortably. Well, they bring up a lot of resistance and um, in a way that isn't that supportive, isn't that nourishing, because we're used to a different approach. So finding a balance, maybe exploring something new, if it's new for you, some of these practices, but also um, in allowing ourselves to just um, acknowledge what does work for us and, and and uh, t- taking that is something that we uh, we allow ourselves. So we can explore these edges that come up of resistance around newness um, in a way that doesn't uh, discredit our own discernment, our own needs, our own inner growth and wisdom. It's a fine balance, I think, to find that in any uh, path of transformation, how to be open to receive new things, to explore, and yet how to stay true to ourselves. So we can explore that on this retreat in relationship to the practices, to the schedule, to the group. In the, in the bowing, some people have talked about the bowing in the meetings that we've had, some like it very much, some find it uh, doesn't resonate so well, some don't like it that much. Um, For some it brings up a lot of complex feelings around the relationship to earlier religious conditioning. And I think that's also something to explore. One doesn't have to feel a certain way in the bowing practice. One can actually bow with, with whatever is present take that into the bow. Um, one doesn't have to um, take it on board. These things are just useful mirrors for us to look at where, where do they resonate, where do they bring up resistance, where do they bring up our old wounds, religious wounds that we have from uh, our previous childhood experiences. And then another thing I wanted to reflect on in terms of uh, relationship to practice and working with intensity is this formal um, structure, the silence, the sitting periods, the walking, the focus, just the level of focus is, creates quite a lot of intensity energetically sometimes for people. 
in different ways. Um, and it's, it's not always the case that when there's an experience of intensity around discomfort, energetic blocks within the body, it's not always the case that it's the most conducive just to kind of add to that intensity by increasing the focus. There's something in us sometimes that gets drawn to um, areas of discomfort, tension, tightness within the body in a way that we forget to relax around that or open into a more spacious holding. And so to realize that if we, if we are experiencing energetically areas within the body that become very tight, very painful, or, or emotional content that feels very powerful, hard to contain, that we can actually move in and out of that. We can get a sense for the the attention or the awareness becoming more spacious. So we're not just going to the places all the time that feel a bit wounded or (laughs) uncomfortable, because that's the most powerful thing that's grabbing our attention. It's not to say that one needs to avoid that either, but to just learn to how to maybe create some space. Sometimes when the sitting becomes too intense, something just very simple like opening the eyes and softening the gaze or changing the posture. It's not taking, it's not dismissing what's there, but it's just creating a little space. It's breaking the fixation a bit. It's allowing you to go to a, a wider context, a wider holding. Or maybe noticing if there's a part of the body that does feel like there's um, intensity or in the emotional field, to also notice what is healthy, what is strong, feeling the back or the legs or the thighs, places in the body that feel where there's strength, where there's health, so that we can learn some agility in working with these areas that uh, feel uh, stuck or painful or intense in a way that that light, spacious, has some movement and flexibility with it. So we don't just have one movement. This practice of uh, samatha, samadhi, sati, all of these words are about bringing presence, bringing awareness, attention, to what is, is really learning to develop capacity or a container, an ability to be with our experience in a particular kind of way. And then this, uh, this is something that's very important as we um, open the meditation and start to explore the aspect of vipassana, or contemplation, or more reflective type of meditation, the insight. But, uh, this samatha and the, the calming uh, is partly dependent on the ability to, as we were talking about earlier, just to put things down and to turn to primarily one sign, breath. And we've been slowly mixing breath with body, with feeling. So we're beginning to broaden the sphere of awareness. But there's a certain kind of turning towards that which is calming, that which is stabilizing, that which is grounding. And for many people, you've had a bit of a taste of that, the benefits of that. 
and that's a, a meditation you can spend a whole lifetime bit by bit developing and maturing. But it also has some limitations to it, in that it can be easily disturbed by that which isn't very calm, which is beyond our control. Different noises, movement, when we go out into daily life. Uh, if our meditation is dependent upon having calm, um, inner stability and, and being uh, tranquil, uh, which is dependent upon a certain environment like a retreat, then, then, our, then our meditation becomes very fragile and very split. So this, this summit is very important, it's a very important foundation. It uh, gives us strength of mind, gives us capacity to be with, but it's also important to begin to be able to use that strength of awareness and attention to reflect on our experience to reflect on what is arising within the sphere of our awareness, what is uh, present, what is our relationship to what is present. So when we feel disturbed, is it the, is the problem really the thing that's disturbing us, that we feel disturbing us, the noise or the contact or is, is, is that really the problem? Or is it something to do with our relationship to the experience of what is presenting itself in this moment? So this more reflective, this vipassana is the meditation, the style of meditation begins to introduce us to what's called panya, this third aspect of the path, which means wisdom, or to wisely understand the nature of things as they are, and through that understanding having a more clear relationship to what is present. Vipassana meditation in some ways is not so peaceful as the samatha because we're allowing things to be present uh, in a way which perhaps in the summit we might just turn away and come to breath, put aside worries or expectations, fears and desires. Whereas in the summit, in the Vipassana, we're beginning to allow ourselves to contemplate what is this this so-called disturbance, the things that so-called disturb us. What is what is it that removes us from being very peaceful here and now? It uh, creates a sense of dis-ease. What is this dis-ease? So rather than being uh, averse to that and pushing away a sense of disease, discomfort, lack of peacefulness, we can actually realize there's something we can turn to, to contemplate, to reflect on. Tenchara used to say that peace doesn't really ultimately come from tranquility, but it comes from wisdom. It comes from understanding the nature of things. Being with the nature. 
whatever is apparent, being with the nature of worry or sadness or expectation or wanting something or not wanting something. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how we can be. How, what is this way of being with things? Particularly that to those things that disturb or take away the sense of peacefulness and centeredness. How, how can we be with that in a way that, is, that has some space? It has some reflective capacity, that has some steadiness. This notion of capacity or container is very important, developing the ability to stay with that which usually moves us, or we get moved by. For the sake of really exploring what is this energy, what is this that is present here. When we look at the, for example, the classical way of talking about that which uh, robs us of our peacefulness, Often that's articulated as that which hinders, the hindrances, or that which obstructs. First two we've been looking at somewhat, that which wants something that isn't here, and then the opposite, that which doesn't want something. And there's no capacity, no container when these energies arise, and we just get moved, either when desire is there, desire for some sensory contact, something to see, something to taste, something to feel, something to hear, something to think. Just raw desire, we don't even know what for. Wanting something. Contact in some way. When that's there and there's no container, no capacity, no ability to really just reflect, then we, we have two movements. Either we repress it because it's disturbing to us, justify it, justify that, this is bad, shouldn't feel this, or we, we get overwhelmed and get, uh, get uh, land up dispersing our energy, following uh, this feeling that I need something or want something that's not here. And the nature of desire is that it's never sated. And so, sometimes it's this feeling, oh, I want, want to go here, look at this thing, and we get wherever we want to go, and then it arises again. It never points back to where we are, it's always pointing to something else. It reminds me of when one was a child and one would say, you know, to one's parents, please, if I can just have this, I'll never want anything again. <laughs> I promise. Just get me this, just get me this. And so you know the story, how it goes. So this Vipassana is more, it's not to judge that energy, but we really need to feel it, to allow it, to really get a feeling. What is that energy of wanting and desire? We feel it in our bodies, in our blood, the heat of it, the passion of it. We need that energy. 
you have no capacity, no container, no mindfulness, no uh, samadhi, no uh, samatha, ability to contain, ability to reflect, then we can't either use that energy, we can't reflect on it, we very, have a very unconscious relationship to it. It either drives us unconsciously, or we fear it and we repress it. And then the desire not, not to, to not have or not want aversion, aggression. This equally in some ways robs us of our sense of being peaceful. We have to be peaceful and content. Strong feeling of, of no, don't want. Like this. So sometimes in Buddhist practice, uh, <coughs> a strong message: one shouldn't be angry. We shouldn't feel anger. We shouldn't feel aggression. We shouldn't feel that energy. It's bad. So we, we become these meek, mild-mannered Buddhists, English Buddhists. <laughs> Please, thank you very much for disturbing. <laughs> Yeah. didn't work for us very well in South Africa, I noticed. <laughs> Much rougher country. Being a nun in the, in the monastery, if you, you raise an eyebrow, you want to express a boundary, you just raise an eyebrow, people get the message. There's a boundary here. You've kind of said no. You do that in rural South Africa with our local farmers and they just run straight over you. Don't even see the eyebrow. One of our first experiences there was uh, going to our neighbour saying, excuse me, um, would you mind, please, very much, sorry to bother you, <laughs> taking out your 400 metre, tripling your water supply without permission from our tank. Thank you, sorry to disturb you. <laughs> I'll come round to see you on Sunday. It didn't work. we realised we had to go and say, we don't like the fact you've got a water pipe going to our tank. Take it out. He said, well, you're angry. Yes, and we'll sue you if you don't take it out. (laughs) (laughs) This energy, strong no in life, sometimes important. But if we don't really fear that, we feel that coming up, and we have a judgment that we shouldn't feel this. We've been told since we're children it's bad to feel that. We've been told spiritually we shouldn't feel that. We should cut it off, anger. Then we, then we, we actually don't have the energy that we really need for the past. This energy of desire, passion, aggression. First, it's very raw, maybe, but that's the energy we have, energy we need to make contact with when it's just unconscious, it can become quite destructive. When it's repressed, it becomes very depressive. You feel depressed, you don't have the vitality. And sometimes, uh, the analogy of a chicken, little chick breaking out of an egg 
got to have some energy to do that. Can't just make a few little taps and then go to sleep and wait for someone else to come and break the egg. At the same time, the path of transformation, there, there has to be some passion, there has to be some um, desire. But these also are energies that if we don't relate to them in a clear and conscious way, then in, in and of themselves, they're not a problem, but our relationship to them often we create uh, a conflict and a difficulty. We create a struggle and uh, we feel robbed of our centeredness. So one can even, with a samadhi, when the samadhi becomes more mature, one can even in a Vipassana, in a contemplative life, be at peace with that which feels disturbing, or that which feels hot, angry, that which feels passionate, with energy in it, that which feels disturbing, irritating to us, that which feels sad and lost. So we have no container, no capacity to hold or to be with that, these energies, then we, um, then we tend to not be able to use them or reflect on them in a way that really grows our, our wisdom, our, the strength that we need, the vitality that we need for, for our path. When we practice, we allowing the vipassana just to allow things to be as they are, but maybe looking at the relationship to what is present in a way rather than judging it should or shouldn't be here, being able to reflect on from the base of samadhi, from the base of samatha, from the base of groundedness, using breath, body as an anchor, which stabilizes our attention and to investigate what is the nature, what is it, what is the relationship to wanting. Can we just see it as that? Can we know it as that? Can we allow ourselves to feel the energy of it? What is the nature of aversion, not wanting, hatred? quite a scary thing to feel for us, wanting to be ever so good and spiritual. It's hard to sometimes allow ourselves to feel these things, and can we, if that emerges, or in a more subtle way, sometimes it can be uh, just a feeling of not wanting to be here, it's not necessarily strong hatred, Version, just this subtle sense of I don't want to be here, I don't want to exist. So it undermines our sense of well being. So it can be a very deep um, pattern, deep, called sankara, we call it hana, the desire, something that doesn't really want to, want to fully be here, incarnated in our body, in life, in contact. 
Usually that's so subtle that we don't even know it's shaped our whole relationship to the world around us. This sort of sense of resistance somehow. Perhaps not even that obvious. Feeling of resisting things, resisting life, resisting contact, resisting our inner experience. So these, these are more, when they're more subtle, they're harder to see when there's strong energy, lust, strong energy of aversion. You can't miss it. In our blood, we can feel it, the heat, the power of it. We can bring our awareness to that, to feel it in the body. Take it back to the body. When it's more subtle, like that feeling of unconscious resistance, mm. dullness, not necessarily falling over asleep, but just this sort of not really being fully here, something that doesn't really want to fully be here, like a numbness, dulling out. Those are harder, more subtle to see. But when we do see them, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to realize that uh, something that we've been shaped by, that we've taken as, this is who I am, is just uh, a sankara, it's a pattern. It's something that's arising, has arisen, is conditioned, who knows from what, hard to know sometimes. And it's been unconscious, and we have a moment of consciousness, a moment of seeing. Ah, that's that feeling of not wanting to exist. <laughs> it's familiar. I've been there a lot of times. <laughs> and it loses its power. It loses its power of us. It's not shaping us in the same way. And rather than it uh, giving us a sense of form and shape to the sense of self, it becomes something we can contemplate. Isn't that interesting? Look at that. How does it feel? Where do I feel it in my body? What are the belief patterns around it? Where, where, how does it affect the mind? What is it, how does it affect my energy? Connected feeling with maybe anxiety with it, fear around that. Something dull, something numb, something avoiding, resisting, something restless in the heart and body and mind. It's very hard energy to be with when, when, when um, a lot of restlessness. Never quite comfortable, don't quite know where we should be, moving from here, moving to there. And again, when it's unconscious, it's, uh, it, it drives us, it's driven. Go, go somewhere, go here, go there. We feel that energy, see if we can sit with it, contain it, for a bit longer than we usually do. This is the edge of the practice that we can explore. I really want to move and feel that energy through the body. Can we have a bit more capacity to hold, to, to be with that? 
breathe, this is where the samatha is so helpful, to breathe into it, to breathe with it, to feel it in the body. And even more subtle and more hard to see the energy of uncertainty or doubt, worry, should I be doing this? Shouldn't I be doing this? Where should I be? Who am I? Did I, what, did I exist before? Will I be doing in the future? <laughs> Maybe I should be doing some other kind of practice. Maybe this practice isn't working for me. Maybe there's something better that should be happening right now. Am I a real person or not? <laughs> Tell me, please. <laughs> am I okay or not? <laughs> Is this okay or not? Is Dharma talk okay or not? I don't know. <laughs> Is retreat going well? Is it not? Something that wants to have certainty. Please tell me it's okay. Please tell me that it's all fine. Please tell me that I'm okay, you're okay, treat's okay, that I'm doing the right thing. So this, this mind in a state of anxiety and doubt, uncertainty, when we see that, it's a very different relationship. That which sees it isn't doubtful. That which sees it is, is clear, confident, present. And just say, this is doubt. This is doubt. I don't know. That's a wonderful thing to be able to see that energy rather than having to be propelled by it, trying to seek an answer, trying to seek certainty, trying to m- nail our whole life to a plan so we don't have to experience doubt and uncertainty. We can just say, this is doubt. And then from the place of seeing doubt, there's solidity, there's ground there. There's this being able to be here with the uncertainty, with the not knowing. In fact, we can, rather than being scared of not knowing, it can become an ally. It can be something we learn to bow into, to open to. If we don't allow any space for the not knowing, then... Sometimes it's very hard for new things to appear from within ourselves and new things to appear within our lives. We're terrified of that space of not knowing and uncertainty, so we we keep covering covering it up with with plans and things to do, ways of being, strategies. (coughs) But it's hard to do that, again, if we haven't got any capacity uh, to bear the uncomfortable feeling. Because all of these things disturb us, disturb our peacefulness. But however, when we have this reflective mind, the ability to connect that same quality of attention that we take into the breath, the vitaka, we can explore these hindrances, so-called hindrances, bringing attention to what does this doubt feel like, where is it, and to receive the experience of it, to reflect upon it for the sake of understanding it, for knowing it.
As the Buddha said, it's with these hindrances when they're not when they're not conscious, when we don't work with them consciously, when we don't use the energy of them to support our practice, to transform them, then it's as if we're in prison. It's as if we're enslaved or it's as if we're in debt. We're robbed of our essential well-being. The story I like to reflect on from Ajahn Chah, which uh, I find very encouraging in relationship to this more open, reflective type of meditation, the Vipassana. One day when um, he was first in England, one of his two visits, two visits, one of two visits, he, uh, <coughs> he came to the small, small Vihara, small, wasn't exactly a monastery, but dwelling where the first uh, Western monks and that forest tradition came to London, Hampstead, Hampstead near Hampstead Heath, Haverstock Hill. There was a small London house in 1975, 1976. The first four monks came over. Jens Sumedho and Ananda, Jiradamo, So Ajahn Chah came, and uh, that evening was a summer evening, and the windows were open to let some air in, in the middle of London, and it was a full house, people coming to see the great master, meditation master from the forest in Northeast Thailand, and Ajahn Chah was impressive, definitely worth checking out and going to hang out with, the people had come for the evening, special evening, but it also coincided that particular evening with the rock concert happening in the pub of the city of Bahara. <laughs> so there was a situation. We uh, come for a Dharma talk, peaceful evening of meditation with a rock concert going on. So everyone got very upset by this except Ajahn Chah who sit there, smiling, quite happy, in the meditation, smile on his face. Everyone getting a bit distressed, trying to close the window. And at the end of the meditation, he rings the bell and he looks at everyone. Oh, hmm. well, looks a bit anxious. And he said, well, what's the problem? He said, is, is that noise disturbing you or are you going out to disturb that noise? <laughs> <laughs> There's something we can... Uh, really is of quite a profound teaching. You know, what, what really disturbs us? What is that about? You know, can we see that which is disturbing as an opportunity? Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, it demands something from us. And maybe uh, the ability to begin to perhaps glimpse the possibility that, as Ajahn Chah said, peace doesn't really ultimately come from just trying to have a calm, quiet, tranquil situation, however lovely that is and however praiseworthy that is. But true and profound peace comes from a heart 
that's unshakable in contact with the changing world, changing dharmas of this world, that true peace comes from wisdom. Do you do that? Mm-hmm.